This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making the truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And also don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, our USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, and more. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's special guest possesses incredible latitude as it relates to areas of expertise. He is known for his uncanny ability to forecast seismic and volcanic activity. He also knows his history, and also having held an above-top-secret security clearance, he is very aware of how the United States conquered anti-gravity propulsion since the 1950s. Imagine what we can do now. Is the planet getting ready for a change? Could we be rapidly approaching a time when wars may be a thing of the past, but what world government? via 10 regions decided by the United Nations become a reality? Is the planet expanding? And that is why we are hearing Mother Earth roar, crack and boom? What do the Hopi and even NASA 
know that they are not discussing. Could the approaching comet Ison be the blue star Kachina, the hope he talked about? And what could our solar system experience during its passing? What are the safe areas to endure any possible man-made or natural calamity? For this and much more, Standeo is coming up next, right now on Veritas. This is Susan Joy Renison, and you are listening to Veritas. Stan Deo has hailed above top secret security clearance and worked undercover for the FBI. He was part of an exclusive black project headed by Dr. Edward Teller, specializing in the development of flying saucer technology. And after so many years, we finally, finally get to have Standeo on the show. And to learn more about Standeo, you can visit his website, which is linked on ours. And directly from somewhere in Colorado, the beautiful state of Colorado, I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Standeo. Hello, Mr. Deo, how are you? Very good, Mel. Thank you for that kind introduction. It's my pleasure having you on. And a lot of our listeners have been asking me lately because of you know, we hear global warming, then it changes to to uh, uh, climate change, earth changes. And I thought, if there's one person out there that can definitely discuss this subject with, with a lot of credibility, it would be you. Stan, when did you start discussing all these topics? I'm always curious about your beginnings. Gosh, uh, well, at different times for different parts of the uh, topics you're mentioning, but... Um I suppose the uh, study of the sun started about 19, oh, uh, gosh, 1978, 77, 78. Um, that is after I left the organization with Dr. Teller's group and uh, had resurfaced over in um, Perth. Um, I found some of the works of uh, Gribben and Pleasurman uh, forecasting the planetary alignment and the effects it would have on the, the sun and hence the Earth's climate uh, quite interesting and did include those in talks in the uh, and also in the book the cosmic conspiracy um and at the same time i i uh, picked up the uh, club of rome document uh, where they were talking about the, the dividing the earth up into a new one world government of 10 nation states or super nation states so that's about when it most of it started it was back there in 77 now what you mentioned about dividing the world into 10 different regions. Is that something that are we going to see in our lifetime? Oh, yes. It's underway now. Um, I uh, wrote about it in the uh, Cosmic Conspiracy, and on page 200 of the book, I actually have a map that they um, produced. Uh, let's see. It might have been Meadows' report for the Club of Rome, but anyway, they did produce a, um, a map showing the 10 regions of the planet what they would be and uh, what nations would be included in them. They had a little bit of trouble with South Africa. They put that into two uh, different uh, groups at the same time. But basically, they used a, a um, socioeconomic, political, religious kind of criteria. There was a, a whole bunch of variables in the equation the computer they used at the time to determine what uh, what countries would fit uh, best into a common, you know, cultural, economic, religious packages. Now, 
that's on page 200. It's the uh, the Club of Rome image, so I reproduce it as I saw it. Um, and a few pages before that, I actually list the nations that we know today as parts of those groups. And you'll find, as I said, South Africa is located in Group 4 and 8. And Group 4 primarily has Australia and then um, South well, South Africa is in part of the African continent. So South Africa and, uh, and Australia, they divided it in those two groups. So yeah. anyway, you can see that in the book. And there's a complete explanation of why they had done this. And uh, it is from their strategy for survival project. Um, Masarovich and uh, Festel, the directors of the club at that time in 1973, put together this report. And that government, that global government, is, I'm sure, going to come to play in our lifetime and probably within the next uh, few years, uh, less than 10, less than seven, probably. We think of the word, the expression, one world government is coming. But of course, I always think of the war profiteering machine with a one world government. We wouldn't be having any wars. Is that why we have these divisions, these 10 regions? Because, you know, they can fight each other and still make money for the war machine? Oh, I don't know that it will be necessary at that time. Once they have absolute control, the, the global planners, they're not going to need to have uh, wars to, um, you know, uh, make industry thrive. They'll have other things in the form of uh, mass conditioning, probably in the uh, the social media networks and in the movies, TV shows, uh, of the time, if those things are still available, but that's a big if because there are a lot of, of threats that could uh, take our global technology back to the 1900s or 1800s, which would then, you know, change their whole objective uh, as far as how to deal with people. But uh, once they have, you know, control of these regions, and I think they will have control from using technology that's not even uh, Earth-based technology in my opinion anyway, and uh, once they have that control, there just won't be the need that they have today to have one group of countries fight another group of countries. Their whole objective in the last 200 years has been to, in fact, even longer, has been to um, consolidate groups of people by warfare into opposing groups and then have those opposing groups fight each other and amalgamate into bigger groups until we get to the last part where we'll have the... Uh, Western Union of Nations um, fighting against the uh, Asian group. And uh, when the last great war is finished, the, the objective of the global planners is to no longer have need for war. A nice nice idea, but the way that they're going to implement it, are going to try to implement it, is not what I would consider a foolproof plan. And I want to discuss how the world would look like if, if that happens. But before that, I'm just thinking of how the the highways in the United States were built, you know, for the purpose of, of being able to to uh, deliver the war machinery from state to state in case of, of an attack. And the same thing could be said, in my opinion, I wonder if you agree, with DARPA's internet. You know, we, we can, you know, have all these thousands of computers connected to each other. Do you think that the purpose of the internet has changed and has gotten out of hand? Because right now, people are, I don't think, are paying attention to the mainstream media that much, and they're going to alternative. Do you think they didn't realize the power of the internet in the future? 
Well, I don't know whether it was that or whether they realized that in time they wouldn't need it um, to be a defensive mechanism, uh, you know, or defense communications, because ideally, if their plan succeed, they wanted to um, have a a peaceful world and there would be no need for a defense communication network. But, you know, DARPA, uh, ARPA at the time, uh, did design it for... Uh, communication you know, emerges during warfare. That's true. I don't think it'll be that way, and I don't think they expect it to be. As far as highways uh, connecting uh, the states to transport military weapons back and forth, they've replaced that now with subterranean tunnels that will mm-hmm. allow them to uh, transport equipment and personnel and supplies at very high speeds underground, perhaps in some cases under underwater in tunnels that are under the bottom of the ocean but anyway those those because of those new developments that they've uh, put into place in the last two or three decades um i don't see that they're they're too worried about repairing infrastructure in bridges and uh, highways between uh states particularly the united states we are going to have problems with the sun it is being irregular it uh its energy output is varying and so we call it a variable a star because its energy output, its uh, uh, signature output is varying. It's not constant. We expect it to get much hotter in the near future and hot enough at some point to actually force people underground into caves and caverns and, you know, air conditioned basements. I don't know whether that would do it or not, but at that time the heat will melt a lot of our roads that have uh, used tar to bind the elements to, to make the road. So cars will not be able to use those roads anyway. Tires will probably melt and burst from the heat. So, you know, I think the, the time is way past for them to depend on that as their major uh, transport mechanism or, or a road for the equipment they need to move. If roads would be so hot that they would melt tires, I don't think that... <laughs> Living beings will be able, at least humans, cannot be able to survive in that kind of heat, would they? Well, they'll be wanting to go into caves and underground. It'll only be a brief period of time, probably a few weeks, that that will, that will happen. But it will be a very uh, hot uh, time. Even the Hopi uh, prophecy keepers uh, have talked to Holly and I uh, about this, and they're expecting soon to see this uh, increased heat from the sun and They've already made preparations to go several feet underground, I think about six foot down to the top of the roof of their little mud kivas, like a, an igloo out of mud. And they've made provision for a few weeks for food and water. When the sun gets so hot, they have to go into the uh, the kiva to uh, survive. But it's not permanent. They They speak about it in terms of weeks. And after it passes, there will be a lot of trees and grass that have been burned and Just like the biblical prophecies in the book of Revelation, there will be dead fish, you know, in the streams and in the oceans from the heat, but it will pass. Let me just say thank you also to your wife, Holy Deo. She does a great job in, in her in, in her books and, and a lot of her research. Speaking of the Hopi, I think of uh, the Blue Kachina. Now we, all over the news, we see comet Ison, which is blue. Well, it's a false, it's a false color image. And I don't know whether it really is blue or not, but it is in the image that, that NASA is showing of ice. And yes. So if this is indeed blue, whether it's true or not, 
Mm-hmm. Do you think this might be the blue kachina that, uh, and, you know, probably followed by the red kachina that the Hopi speak about? Well, it could very well be. Um, you know, it's a bright light in the sky and would qualify as a, a blue star. I don't think we're literally going to see another star uh, enter our system. Uh, otherwise, there'd be a lot more damage uh, recorded in the book of the Revelation of John. Uh, if that were the case, planets would change orbits and all kinds of things would happen. But I'm pretty sure it'll be a bright uh, comet-like object that will cause, uh, that will represent that uh, blue star. Now, there's another thing, too. The, the amount of debris coming out in the tail of that comet Ison is much more than expected, much more than normal. And this, to me, indicates that Ison is, I mean, it's so far out still, you know, that I wouldn't expect it this early, but it does indicate that it's breaking up, and it's going to leave a long, uh, dirty uh, trail behind it. And in that respect, both Mars and Earth could interact, uh, could collide with a number of these debris uh, clusters, and that might be what the the biblical prophecy speaks of when it says a star called Wormwood falls into the ocean. It might be a big chunk of that comet uh, left over after it passes the sun. Now, when it does pass the sun, or gets closest point to it in November this year, it is going to be a, a sun grazer. It's a comet that gets so close to the sun that it grazes the outer chromosphere. And this causes, even in normal periods of, of the sun, this causes coronal mass ejections to erupt from the surface of the sun right in the direction where the comet passed and also on the opposite side of the sun just a, a few hours later. Sometimes up to a few, a couple of days later, but um, this this Eisen comet ordinarily may not might not have been a you know major deal, but because the sun is in a, a weakened state, it's burned over half its hydrogen supply, and it's it's subject to change to a new type of uh, nuclear reaction. And also, we're, this year we're seeing the the sun start to do its eleven uh, year um, polar magnetic polar reversal. Because of all these things coming at the same time that ice is coming to disturb it, we may see some rather interesting changes in the output of the sun itself as far as debris and solar wind and coronal mass ejections and flares and radiation, a number of things that I think will move. In fact, it's already starting to happen. We think the sun is already starting to shift its light output into the uh, blue ultraviolet range, which will be very, very bright, not so much so from the infrared side, which if the infrared were to increase by as much as we think the sun's ultraviolet will, it, it would cook the surface of the planet and nothing would live even in the caves. But I don't think that's what's going to be happening. I, I do think it's the ultraviolet. And having experienced a little bit of that ultraviolet penetration when I was in Australia, which uh, the ultraviolet uh, came through the uh, an ozone hole over Perth, we felt it, it going through our clothes. It was like a little pin stabbing your skin. And so imagine what it would be like if it was really bad. And at that time, when that was happening, they had just discovered that the sun was outputting two new spectral frequencies in the ultraviolet range. So we know positively, I mean, I've talked to the Air Force on this and some of the astronomers involved at the time, the sun is changing. And uh, this, this is just a very... Uh, unpredictable time for the next oh, probably six, seven, eight, nine years, something like that. I remember as a child uh, using a magnifying glass to, to burn paper. And sometimes uh, 
I would be stupid enough to put my hand, and I felt like a pinprick. Is that what you're referring to? Um, well, having used uh, magnifying glasses myself, the um, when I burnt myself with um, the magnifying glass on <laughs> the sun, it was a blister. It did burn. Yeah. But um, I guess I would describe it as a warm or a hot sting, you know, more like a stinging sensation than a... Mm -hmm and a burning sensation, but obviously it will be damaging your tissue a bit. Certainly you want to be protecting your eyes during that time. And since the, what is it, 1500s that we've had uh, recordings of sunspot activity, right. and I've heard that now we have, uh, the sun is so unstable, more stable than any other time, and it's supposed to be at a grand solar maximum, but it's it hardly has any sunspots. Why is that, Stan? Well, there's a lot of conjecture in the scientific community as to why it's, it's doing this. As you say, it should be at its high sunspot activity. We've never had a grand solar maximum in recorded history. The reason they've called it that is still a mystery to us out here in, in the civilian world, but I think it is due to the fact that the sun is expected, and is doing so, is expected to increase its energy output uh, in the form of uh, solar wind, coronal mass ejections, flares, like I was saying a while ago. And because of that, uh, the sunspots don't necessarily, they're not necessarily the, the source of some of these uh, radiated fields that we're talking about and these uh, particle accelerations that occur. The, the, what we're talking about comes from coronal holes, which you can only see in certain bandwidths and certain wavelengths when you uh, image the sun. Now, uh they also say that uh, we should have peaked this year, and they're now saying, well, it didn't peak in sunspot numbers, but the intensity, of course, is on the rise of the energy coming out of the sun in other forms. They're thinking that maybe in 2014-15, they will have a secondary peak of this solar sunspot cycle. And this has happened before two or three times where we've had a double peak in a solar sunspot cycle. But remember, that's only counting the number of sunspots not the surface area or the coronal hole uh, areas uh, which emit a lot of this radiation we're talking about. The fact that NASA has called it a grand solar maximum when it is so obviously not the sunspot number does does lead us to believe that they know more than they're saying. Of like course. I know, I know they are. I, I just know they are. Of course. And I, I know one of the reasons why you're so respected, Stan, is because you deal with facts, and you don't like to speculate. But I have to ask you, you probably remember September the 10th, 2001, when Donald Rumsfeld said that we have lost $2.3 trillion. Do you think that that money or some of that money went to perhaps building these underground facilities? Oh, well, I don't know about that particular amount of money, but uh, it did go missing. And normally the amount uh, of money we're talking about in the black budgets did go through things like uh, $600 toilet seats and <laughs> $200 hammers and stuff like that. They yeah. did an across-the-board raising of the value of various projects to hide this. I mean, that is you know fairly uh, well-known in the public now. That's no secret. But whether that uh, couple trillion went to that, it would I don't know. I would assume that that kind of money did do that. Uh, it takes a lot to, uh, to drill these tunnels. The uh, early machines in the 70s that the Air Force had, the tunnel bores were about 20 to 22 feet in diameter, you know, the holes that they dug. 
since then, the Japanese have built uh, better ones. The uh, Germans had one that's 42 feet in diameter, which is like four stories in diameter, right? And that you can see how they could even fly underground in those kind of tunnels, properly constructed. Um, but anyway, that would take a lot of dollars, and I'm sure that they've put emergency food supplies, water supplies, energy supplies, probably nuclear. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it in one base that uh, they're depending on when infrastructure on the surface of the earth fails and when government fails and there's anarchy amongst the people on the surface, then they want to be totally um, self-sustaining but underground or under ocean or, you know, like in the South Pole one where the, the Germans um, first uh, discovered that... Uh, oh, Neuschwabenland. That, yeah, Neuschwabenland, yeah. I didn't know whether you knew about that, but yes, that's that that base, as far as I know, is still active under the consortium of nations, and uh, that you can only get to by submarine or by uh, saucer craft that are like submarines and aircraft at the same time. It's just impossible to get to it to uh, cause any damage or to invade it. So they're pretty safe if they go to the Schwabenland base, and uh, there are some under the ocean, under the seabed, and those are pretty hard to get to as well. So. Those kind of things would cost a lot of money to set up and test and stock. And I'm sure that that's where that kind of money could be redirected. So this network of underground, can we call them highways, it's not only connecting the United States, but would you say the entire globe? Well, I'm not sure. Um, the, the Aborigines in Australia and the North, some of the tribals did say at one time that uh, they used to be able to walk under the ocean from there over to Africa. Um, whether that's still true or not, or whether it ever was true, I don't know. But there are a lot of, of uh, rumors out there on the Internet about uh, global connections this way. I don't think it would be necessary uh, you know, to, to have the tunnels with the kind of craft that they have, the technology they have. They could go from point A to point B in the air, mm -hmm. in space, drop down and, you know, get to another safe location. But they're only going to have to do that for short periods of time. And the main problem is going to be the radiation from the sun. And when our magnetic field starts its reversal, which I think it's starting now, it will make a weakened magnetic field around the Earth. The magnetopause will weaken and the magnetosphere will uh, reduce in diameter a great deal. These things will not totally disappear, the magnetic shields, but they will weaken and form spots of protection and spots then, uh, conversely, of no protection from the gamma radiation from interstellar sources and from our own sun and from various radiation frequencies that we're normally shielded from with the um, magnetosphere and magnetopause and with the um, ionosphere. All those things are our shields. When the magnetic field starts to wobble and weaken and start to flip upside down, uh, I've seen the maps, you know, the uh, 3D simulations that NASA has on their website of when a, a polar shift or reversal occurs, what will happen inside the planet as far as they know. And even their public statements show that at that time there will not be one north-south pole. There will be three sets. The main north-south pole as it starts to, to wobble and drift toward, a, you know, flipping upside down. But at the same time, at least two mini, M-I-N-I, mini north-south poles that will float around the planet in, in the turbulence that forms from trying to invert a spinning 
magnetic uh, core at the same time that the planet is spinning uh, and this tries to spin against it, it creates turbulence that is quite complicated. But um, it does it does look like it will, if that happens in our lifetime, which I think it's beginning, it will be pretty difficult to um, endure on the surface when it reaches its maximum. And since we have ice sheets and, and, and tree rings that we can analyze and go back thousands of years and find that certain events happen at certain intervals in, in time, could we predict the next uh, big event? Could it be a large coronal mass ejection or flare in our direction? That's, that's harder for us to predict because that requires that we um, have an absolutely perfect mathematical model of how the sun works, and we don't. This thing that started in 1992 with the, the two new spectral frequencies in the ultraviolet coming out, coupled with the earlier reports a decade or so before from the Russians showing that they that they determined that our sun had already exhausted over half of its hydrogen fuel, leading it to go to this next stage of its development, which might be uh, going to a fusion reaction rather than, you know, first fission-fission, then fusion-fusion reaction, which could cause the... Um, the sun to expand a bit and to throw off debris and things like that. So, uh, um, the, the, no, the, the sun the sun is part of it, but we cannot predict accurately what it's going to do. I don't think that anybody on the planet, unless they're an alien or a messenger from God Himself, could tell us what's what's going to happen and when next. Um, it's it's a toss up. There's so many variables that we don't have data on that. We just can't pin it down, and I'd say that that's uh, that's the the main logic behind that. I keep thinking of the ten regions that that you you say, and I cannot see how the war machine would be out of the picture uh, for some reason. For right now, for example, the war on terror, I call it the war for terror, just like the war for drugs. They're there just to to keep the profiteering happening. But can you paint a picture of these 10 regions? How would the world change in th those 10 regions? Well, uh, have you uh, seen a copy of the latest edition of the uh, Cosmic Conspiracy book that I wrote, the final edition, 2010? No, I, I'm not lucky enough to have seen it. Not yet. All right. Well, I spent 20, uh, in 2010, I spent about three months developing a new translation of just eight verses from the book of Daniel, which does address this Ten nation situation on the planet, and it is a pretty uh, scary type picture that Daniel had coded in, and it was sealed until the time of uh, where we are now, toward the time of the end of this age. It tells about an alien god, little g god, that comes to Earth, backs the the new Antichrist of this age to run the planet, and with their technology, they will give this guy a human the technological advantage to overthrow the strongholds of the mighty that are underground and wherever else, to overthrow the Illuminati, to um, make a global network of ten nation-states. And those are the ten toes that you see uh, in the, the dream of, um, of Nebuchadnezzar when he talks about the, the, the guy with the, the golden head, etc., etc., all the way down to the legs, two legs of iron, and then the legs of iron are two feet with toes of iron and clay mixed. Those ten toes are the ten regions that we're speaking about that the Club of Rome wants to form. 
they, some of the people of these nations will be given to the alien god, the fallen one, as payment for the technology that he gives to the world leader to unify the planet. And that's why I think that the need for war as an economic stimulus and a control stimulus will pass. Um, it's not saying that all those ten regions will get along happily, but uh, I don't know how many of them will be under alien control, uh, Satan and the fallen ones, or how many will be under Earth uh, control under the Antichrist. But basically, those ten regions will become kingdoms, and there will be a king appointed over each one. And they will answer to the um, the world government of the Antichrist, backed by Satan and those who followed him. That's what I found out in those eight verses that I painstakingly retranslated and uh, decoded. Uh, for that reason, as I say, we're we're going to go above the corporate economic structure that will be destroyed uh, when this new world order establishes. And at that time, the technology that will be available to those in power will be so far advanced that people will not be able to hide or keep secrets from the world leadership. Is the Ark of the Covenant, is it any part, any any variable to this equation? Well, there are two arcs, uh, one in heaven, uh, spoken of in the book of Revelation, in the early part of it, God's Ark of the Covenant, and then the Ark of the Covenant, the Aaron HaKodesh, that was uh, made... Uh, in the time of Solomon. Now that has gone to ground. I think that if it is still on earth, it will be probably in a, uh, a large, well, a relatively large um, room underneath the um, the Dome of the Rock area, the Temple Mount. It won't, it won't be under the Dome, particularly it'll be kind of to the southwest um, of it. But um, there is a, a huge stone there that's part of the the wall that supports, you know, the, the Temple Mount under under the, the earth there, and it's an area where uh, people wanted to image it with ground uh, penetrating radar. And when I say people, uh, Dr. Lambert uh, Dolphin uh, back in the 80s wanted to do it and took his crew over there and uh, was just about to set it up when Nimrod Novak under Shimon Peres had him arrested, all of his crew, and impounded uh, everything overnight they could seal up that tunnel and lock it because they didn't want him to poke in there, you know, look in there and see if the Ark was there. Politically, it was a, a hot potato. But I do think that the, the Ark, if it is on Earth, is there and that it was dropped down into that tunnel and sealed, or into that uh, room, and sealed in the time of Jeremiah when the king of Babylon had um, taken over Jerusalem. And I think uh, Jeremiah took a fake Ark of the Covenant over into uh, Mount Nebo and hid it there uh, in a deal with uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar so that um, the uh, so that he wouldn't take the real Ark of the Covenant and destroy it. And he, Jeremiah told him, you know, the king of Babylon, look, I'm going to take it out here and hide it out of the country so there won't be a problem to you because he was, you know, the uh, the Babylonian king was afraid of this. This, the power of this device. But I do think that uh, everyone looking elsewhere outside of Israel is not looking in the right place. There's just a lot of evidence that says that it's underneath the Temple Mount and at the appointed time that uh, they may reveal it and bring it out and make it part of the Third Temple. And that can happen virtually in a space of a few days or a few weeks because they can build a, a tabernacle of the wilderness. The Third Temple can be the 
the tabernacle of the wilderness of, of cloth and various other things erected on the wailing wall so that they don't even have to be on top of the of, you know, temple of the mount but uh, i do think that um I've heard that the, well, some researchers have mentioned that this could be in Ethiopia, being guarded by, by, by some Ethiopian guards, and every few years, each guard dies out of, uh, you know, radioactive uh, poisoning. Have you heard that? No, I hadn't heard about the guards dying. I, I do know about the Ethiopian uh, area that's protected, and, you know, the, the temple area there where they say they have the ark that was brought over by the the son of Solomon and Sheba, but right. I don't know uh, whether his son actually bought the the real one or the duplicate that Solomon had made at the time. I I can't tell you. I don't know. And speaking of Babylon, you probably have heard that uh, Saddam Hussein used to think that he was the reincarnation of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and that the real reason, and this could be speculation, that the United States invaded in in, in 2003 was not oil, was not weapons of mass destruction, but was to, to capture certain ancient technology that he, he had. Do you lend any credence to that? I don't know. I hadn't heard anything that I would put uh, credence to, no. I I do know that uh, Linda Moulton Howe, who is a UFO investigator, told me on the phone here probably 20, 25 years ago that she was in Washington in the Pentagon and that she had heard a number of the generals kind of in whispered tones talking about the return of the Sumerian gods. And that was in, of course, the old Babylonian Empire, which followed Sumer. But um, uh, they spoke about things like uh, trans-dimensional or trans-universe gates, you know, the the, the Babel gates, the, the gateway to the gods, Mm-hmm. Um, much like what uh, they used in the Stargate uh, movie, where they right. Daniel Jackson said, "No, this is the, the the you know the gateway to heaven, you know the Stargate." Well, uh, I think in the ancient uh, times that it was a gateway from not here to the nearest star, or some other star system, but it was a gateway between universes. It, much of the Hebrew does suggest that, that we have parallel or concentric universes around us. And I think that that was the technology that they had then. And from what Linda Moulton Howe uh, uh, suggested, it might be that they are afraid that that, uh, that gate would be reactivated somewhere in the Middle East. But again, pure speculation. I have nothing that I would count as you know, legitimate proof that such a gate or other technologies were the reason that we invaded uh, Iraq, other than the oil. This is one of the reasons why I like to speak with people like you, Stan, because you discuss so many areas. Uh, just a thought came to mind, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program. When you were with the government, did, did, they, did, did you learn the real reason for Star Wars? Well, um, yes and no. The, we did have an agreement or several treaties with these uh, with the fallen ones, transdimensional beings following Satan, and that started in the uh, early 50s, well, very early 50s. I don't know how many treaties were actually drawn up, but they managed to break every one of them almost immediately. And when I was in the organizations in the early 70s, and when I left the organization, uh, I'd only been out a year or two, and one of the security guards and I met in another town, and uh, he was telling me that 
the there had been a, a series of battles in our underground bases that we'd set up for these uh, fallen ones, these transdimensional beings, bad guys, little greys, big greys, you know, Nordics and whatever, that we had lost battles and had been kicked out of a number of our bases and eventually to be kicked out of all of them. Now, during that time, uh, Reagan had um, a... Um, a laser-type weapon tested uh, off of the southern shores of Australia, off of Adelaide. And uh, they used Australian target aircraft, one called a, a Gendevic aircraft, and they put that at altitude and brought it in uh, toward the uh, naval vessels that had the, the plasma weapon on board. One of the problems that a normal laser has in trying to, to hit a target and melt it and destroy it is that when a high uh, intensity, probably a you know, carbon dioxide type laser beam hits a metal object in the air or space, wherever, it melts enough of it instantly, or very rapidly anyway, to form a reflective dent in the metal. And that reflective dent becomes like a mirror and dissipates the heat. It reflects it away from the, the target. So they had to figure out a different way to take the directed energy beam to the target and not let it, the energy of it be reflected away, but to dive right into it, to just bore into it. And the way they decided to do it was to use a laser beam that would lock onto the target and would start the the, uh, the heating process in a fraction of a second. And over the outside of that laser beam, they would direct pulsed like donuts of high-voltage, high-energy plasma that would follow the laser beam as though it were a wire in the sky to the target. And so once they got there, the nature of a spinning plasma toroid like that or donut is that it scoops out from the center and throws out to the side. It, in effect, becomes a, a tunneling device. And it, if you shoot a number of these rapidly along that laser beam when it's locked onto the target and heating it, it will just chew right through it and destroy it. Now, the cameras that were used in the uh, on the, the deck of the ship to film this we're shooting at 50,000 frames a second to catch the beam in action to give you an idea of how fast it went. So by doing this, it avoids the reflection and the uh, and make it ineffective. That's true. It makes it effective. Uh, the reflection is virtually reduced because the spinning uh, toroids is like a smoke ring. You know, if you blow a smoke ring, you know how it curls from the inside out as it goes forward. Oh. Well, these things scoop out the metal so that it can't form a reflective surface. It tunnels in very quickly, and that's why they use that. And it is a high-voltage device. I mean, everybody on the ship had to get the hands off of metal and uh, be insulated, and everybody below deck and the ear protection and all kinds of things. But um, I'm pretty sure we've seen at least one test of that in one of the NASA photographs or NASA videos back in the, um, gosh, I guess the late 80s, mid to late 80s. I did report on it in a lecture I gave in uh, Sydney, and you can see the beam going out in the atmosphere up toward um, a, uh, an orbiting uh, craft, probably a shuttle. But um, anyway, it, um, yeah, the Star is Wars this, thing is... You mentioned something very peculiar here. I've, I think I've seen that video footage you're referring to. Is that the one where you can see, let's call it a craft, going from right to left? All of a sudden, you see a flash of light, and you see this... I don't know, a weapon, a blazer, going up and the craft immediately going to the right? Is that what you're referring that's to? That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. What do you think? First of all, that craft, was it ours? Probably not. Um, it, 
in the beginning, before we even had the technology, these guys were here. I mean, even, uh, you know, the, the Greeks saw it, the, the flying shield and uh, various uh, historians in the ancient days, even in the B.C. period, did report things that were like these lights sky or the gods, etc. So they've been there all the time. When we started doing it in the uh, mid to late 50s, when mankind started doing it, there were a number of different ways that were tested. You know, dynamic plasma craft, which saucer shape, but produced that spinning chorus we're talking about with the uh, the laser uh, weapon, but it used it around the whole ship to propel it. And that didn't last long because it caught fire on the seals at the top, and when they got the tremendous speed that they could acquire with it, uh, it made it difficult to turn corners without breaking the craft or the crew inside from, you know, inertia G-forces. And then they went to, you know, to the electrogravitic, the, the local gravitational field for the craft, which allowed it to operate against the Earth's gravitational field, and those kind of craft, well, we started testing those, and that's when I was brought into the program uh, in the early 70s. So some of them are mankind, some of them are uh, the Satans, the fallen ones, uh, the uh, the aliens, the alleged aliens. And that time, I don't know, I suppose the war had gone on by that time. Yes, it had. Uh, it might have been that we were having a go at one of their their craft to see if we could bring it down. But um, one of the things that happens inside the, the field of a of electrogravity craft is that when you go to change direction, you alter time the passage of time for you looking out the window if you wish everybody and everything all the physical chemical reactions outside your field go into slow motion and when i talk slow motion it's like minutes compared to a fraction of a second uh you know a hundred times difference it's uh, or more and so they would have time to detect the approach of a laser weapon at that kind of time dilation, they could sense it, t- detect it, and alter their course, bang, gone, before we could get to them. So once they've got that kind of a field, it's just very difficult with what we had in technology to uh, to strike them and take them down. It's almost impossible. With what I saw in that video, the way that craft behaved, obviously is more advanced than what we, conventional wisdom tells me that more advanced than what we have, why are we shooting at it? We had the equivalent technology until we got kicked out of the bases, and we might still have some forms of it in the Aurora craft and the subsequent generations of that now. We've had those kind of things. I mean, I, I've uh, shown photographs of the assembly area over in Saudi Arabia. We are putting together the 30-foot diameter craft. And um, but we did have basic uh, anti-gravity craft uh, and could perform the same maneuver. But having the craft not the same as having the weapon to shoot it down because of time dilation they can see it's like like a hummingbird or a bee Mm. or fly they operate on a much faster time period and uh, to to them we look like slow motion giants and when we go to reach out to touch a hummingbird or a fly or bee they move way ahead of us and are gone they can they can see our moves coming in slow motion and that's the same thing you know you either have to use a a poison spray or, or, you know, something like that, a, a swatter, to get these uh, these little bees and, and uh, hummingbirds and stuff if we want to even touch them. So mm-hmm. that's the same kind of problem we have, but with the electromagnetic or electrogravitic craft. Uh, how do you make a swatter that long? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah. Whether it's their technology or ours, we both know that time dilates uh, inside the craft. So that's that's a, an issue. They may have solved it by now. I don't know. That might have been part of the Star Wars thing that came later. I don't know. But um, uh, I'm just thinking, if that craft had such an advanced technology to to be able to to stop on a dime and, and move away, doesn't that tell us that they probably have the equivalent of, equivalent in weaponry to, to react to, to the attack? Oh, sure. Sure. Yep. But it still didn't uh, stop people from trying, did it? That's right. That's right. And you mentioned the Aurora. Is that the same as the TR-3B? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's an old generation. I mean, that'd be at least, uh, see, TR-3B about... Oh, 25 years ago, when that was current. And speaking of that, I so many people are filming with Mad Vision goggles, and they see these delta-shaped vehicles, these triangular-shaped vehicles. Are those ours, and is this the Aurora? Well, it's probably a derivative of it if it's ours. Um, understand that what happened when we formed these underground bases with the, the fallen one, They agreed to give us technology in return for us letting them uh, test. Abduct uh, people? Yeah, abduct people, do genetic tests on livestock and, you know, cattle mutilations, etc. And as I say, they immediately broke the contract every time we made one. But we thought that we were getting top-notch technology from these beings. These beings were practicing and using technology from the parallel universe when the Garden of Eden was formed, 6,000 years ago or so. Now... Their knowledge base is so far advanced even beyond that, uh, tens of thousands of years beyond that. And we are just children, less than children, you know, just babies playing with anti-gravity technology. When we got kicked out of the bases, if they had decided that they had enough infrastructure that we had built for them to manufacture more advanced technologies than we even knew about, and they weren't giving us those. But once we built them the manufacturing complexes, the bases underground, They didn't need us down anymore. They're preparing for war with the king of this planet, the rightful king who is coming from the parallel universe, the Messiah. And that's the, the Armageddon conflict at the end of this age. Now, to fight that kind of technology, they're, you know, they have to have weapons that are just probably inconceivable to us at this point in time. Now, we, I mean, how do you compete with that? You know, it's just... Uh, I, I think a lot of people will, will cheer when they see what happens. They will think that you know, these uh, the first uh, alien critters that uh, the fallen ones that make themselves known as our uh, creators and uh, as our Messiah, you know, the head of its Messiah and that kind of junk. They're going to get rid of the Illuminati and the one-worlders that uh, were corporate uh, greedy devils. And we are going to cheer those of us that don't know any better. Say, ah, look, the Illuminati have been beaten. Here comes the, the true Messiah. Well, they've even got holographic images and videos of the crucifixion in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we're going to be fooled by the technology that is just beyond. It's like magic to, to the average person. Well, that's right. You know, who, who was it that say, was it Arthur C. Clarke or Carl Sagan that any any advanced technology would be indistinguishable for magic? You know, we've heard of Project Blue Beam, and the question that I get all the time is, how do we believe if indeed they're coming to say, supposedly to save the world from the Illuminati? How do we know that it's not the same as when the conquistadors came to the new world and the, the indigenous people believed it? 
Oh, I think it will be the same thing. In fact, in that those eight verses I retranslated from the book of Daniel, one of the things that I found quite disturbing was that it um, they used <clears throat> three, or Daniel used two, maybe three versions of the word clay instead of using the same word every time in those uh, four verses of the first part of it. And one of the translations of the type of clay representing mankind was that it was a fragile um, clay to be trodden underfoot and broken and also to be treated like fodder, which is like food, right? Now, that's going to be pretty horrific. Uh, and it won't be just the New Guinea cargo cult. We'll be, we'll be dealing with a, a V scenario like, um, you know, uh, Stan Johnson did, or, mm-hmm. or what you saying, Kenneth Johnson did in the, the V series. So you think that that will be the case? You see these you know massive ships, and they probably have ambassadors trying to to program the population that they're good. Yep, yep. That's the great deception, in my opinion. Uh, just my opinion, but I I found a great deal of evidence to see that the, that what uh, Jesus was speaking of in, in uh, uh, Matthew twenty three was that we were going to be deceived by uh, an alien god or by Satan proposing as a, as a god. So if he comes and says, you know, I'm the leader of the fleet from wherever, you know, Sirius or whatever they want to say, and uh, you can visit me here in my secret place in the desert or in my orbital craft, uh, you know, don't believe it. Because when the real king, the Messiah, comes, you won't have to see him in a hidden place. All eyes will see him at once, and uh, and you will know it within your mind, your soul even, if you're here on the planet at that time, who he is. There won't be any need for special visiting rights. But, uh, but if they have, but if they have the technology, the advanced technology, which to us would look like magic, even with the the you know best discernment that we could exercise, how do we know? The thing is that the technology that they've developed has been based on Earth um, manufacturing techniques uh, mm-hmm. at at this point in time. That is so far behind what it's like in the heavens and the parallel universe that it's not funny. So they are going to be using weapons and, and technology a step above where we are now, but still understandable. And some people call it magic, but we'll see it if we look at it as, okay, that's an advanced laser holographic system. We'll be able to categorize some of these things. Now, it will be, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we'll tell the difference because they will have uh, fallibility. They will have uh, uh, craft that crash. They will have technology sometimes doesn't work right. The Creator, you know, God, has all the technology we need, and uh, it will not fail. And that's what, he's, what uh, Jesus is trying to say there, Matthew 23. Don't uh, believe it if He says, "Come to this secret place, me there, or you know, hide away, or whatever," uh, because. He will be limited by the amount of technology he could reproduce here with human uh, infrastructure that he uh, has built with the help of the humans. It's only been a short time in their time that he's been cast down to earth and, and doing all this without the advantage of the technology in the heavens. They cast them through the portals, and in fact, maybe still doing that through the the, uh, the upper atmosphere where they bring them into our, our universe. And uh, maybe some of the bright lights and things we've seen are, are them being cast out. But I'm sure God does not cast them out with advanced technology uh, from the parallel universe. They have to build here what they need to fight in the final battle. That's how we'll tell the difference. They're just not going to be as all-powerful, all-seeing, 
omniscient as God is. I've heard of a lot of exotic technology that was used thousands of years ago. They were out of place in time and space. You probably have heard of the anti uh, what is it? how do you pronounce it? Antikethra or Antikythera mechanism. Uh, also, uh, the weapon used in the walls of Jericho. Uh, even Zechariah Sitchin, before he died, he told me about the Sinai Peninsula that probably at one point in time, a nuclear explosion happened there because it's it's dead. It's It's almost glass. What's your take on that? Well, the Antikythera device was more or less, you know, ahead of its time as far as gears and computing, and uh, it was a mechanical computer. It's yeah. not that advanced, you know, for our modern world, but for the ancient times it was, and probably was the evidence of, uh, you know, um, advanced technology or, or knowledge coming from, you know, parallel universe from the fallen ones or whatever. The... Um, the Sinai glass thing, I had heard it was over in the Baalbek Plateau in, in Iraq where they had had the nuclear uh, explosion that had fused the glass and it destroyed uh, people in the Indus River Valley in Harappas and Mohenjo-Daro. Uh, they've recently uh, you know, uh, reported on that. So that's, I think that part of the world is where that uh, took place. Um, seems like there's a third thing you asked me there other than the Sinai Peninsula. The no, walls of Jericho. The walls of Jericho. Okay, walls of Jericho. Now I, I visited the site and looked at uh, what they think think was the, uh, the the walls around or the wall around Jericho where it had failed. Now that area is along what used to be part of the Euphrates, which ran from uh, it was part of the Red Sea, ran up and formed the Jordan River, and then up into the Euphrates and Tigris before it uh, earthquake mechanisms lifted up the Galilee area and forced the waters to flow backwards on both sides of the, of the lift. Now, Jericho is down along the side of that, uh, that great rift, and it's an unstable area, which uh, has petroleum, has gas, has salt, all kinds of things in shallow depths there. When God told uh, Moses, have your guys march the Ark of the Covenant around this, you know, for for you know one day and uh, blow your horns and then go for you know six days and on the seventh day do it this many times seven times and then make a loud shout okay what they were doing was building up a long harmonic wave over that seven day period and capping it off with the, the thing that would cause local land to look fault lines to uh, that were under pressure to slip and form a, like a local earthquake and break that wall down. You can see how it fell down, it fractured like an earthquake. And I don't know that that would be, I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting technology, but again, understandable. It, uh, it's not magic. It was just using harmonic uh, energy to cause a fault line that was under pressure anyway to convert at that moment, at that time where they were doing the stomping or whatever. Now, that required... You know, a being that knows that the fault is there and knows that uh, having a march around there in march step, which we tell our soldiers not to do when they're going over a bridge because the harmonic motion will destroy a bridge that way. Same reason, same logic applied to destroying the wall of Jericho. So that technology, could it have been used also to maybe build the pyramids? And I, you mentioned Baalbek, Iraq, but how about Baalbek in Lebanon? I mean, these massive structures that are there, how do you think they were forget about creating them, but moved. Well, there's a couple of ways to move things. One is to have um, 
localize uh, gravitational fields, and other is to use uh, sound uh, to mm-hmm. set up a resonant frequency of a particular mass, say a you know a large stone. And uh, I've played with some of this here at the house uh, in the in the electronics room there, but you can I'm pretty sure develop two sources of sound waves in an object and tune the waves going into that object until the object uh, absorbs the, the mechanical vibrations of the acoustic uh, energy being put in to the point that you can shove it along the, the surface of the earth. Not that it's going to float so much, but it's going to be easy to move by pushing that way. Um, the Coral Castle thing is an example of that that Leedskillen uh, developed. There are other ways, as I say, with just pure local gravitic fields that you attach something to the stone and move it. I don't think that all the pyramids were built, um, you know, by slave labor running stones up like that and on logs and pushing them up and sandbanks. It's just not enough time to put two million stones in place that way for the Great Pyramid. And not only that, underneath the pyramids there are causeways and stuff that are that have water flowing in them, and uh, these are like cast stone, like concrete. And these have been there connecting the three major pyramids there, in the Giza Plateau, to the Sphinx and all kinds of stuff for generations, probably before the first kingdom of the Egyptians. It might have been Atlantean. But uh, those those structures underneath there are probably just as marvelous as the pyramids on top of them. You mentioned Ed Lee Skelman, Coral Castle in, in, in South Florida. You know, the man, five foot tall, 100 pounds. How, how do you think from Latvia, immigrant, not a lot of knowledge. How do you think he got this knowledge to be able to to build that? Not only once, but he actually moved it again in the future. Yeah, I I remember the story of of Ed. Uh, He uh, was an electrician, and as an electrician, obviously he was playing with current and with uh, coils and uh, magnetic fields. Now, he did also have a tripod to move things and lift them, but he probably had developed a way to um, move the stones um, with either mag- magnetic fields at an acoustic level or magnetic fields that set up resonance in the atoms of the stones so that he could move them along, like I was talking about, across the, the surface of the earth, just above the, the deck a little bit. And it doesn't take large amounts of power. It takes energy, but not power. You, you know, you can put a... Uh, say a small diesel generator to generate one of these fields and generate a field and build it up and build it up and build it up over a period of time, several minutes, and then you might have enough energy in the field using a low-power device to stack it up that you could then concentrate all this energy into that stone and uh, be able to move it laterally. Um, when he moved his uh, castle that, that second time to the second location, you know, when he moved it, he wouldn't let the guy with the truck see what he was doing. He had to go away and come back the next morning, and uh, Ed would uh, have all the stones on board. Now, one guy says he heard Ed singing um, that night or one of the nights when he was moving, and it might have been to cover the sound of something else, or he might have been modulating a field with, you know, a tone or, you know, I don't know, because there's not that much definition in the report that we got from that guy. Basically, controlling gravity where you can make an object float at a certain gravitational potential above the surface of the Earth, even if it's uh, an inch. Once you've got it there, then to move it, you don't have 
the problem of moving it with the friction against other dirt around it, but you still have the problem of moving the, that mass inertially. You have to you have to kind of give it a bit of a shove and a shove and a shove to get it moving, and then you got to stop it. But it's like if you were to take a two-ton or stone or larger, polished, and put it on an ice rink, and you want to move it to the other end. Well, you could do that. You know, you could uh, put some cleats on your ice skates, and you could push on that and push on it and push on it. You get it started, and then you better race ahead of it to the other side and start putting the brakes on because it will slide across to the other side of the arena. That's not lifting it up. That's just moving it point A to point B. Now, Leedskullen's thing, he had to get it up on a truck. And I suspect that's why he had that uh, large wooden tripod with a block and tackle on it. Right. It was part of that, once he got it up and, and moving, was to help him get it up a little bit higher and up over the top of that. You know, move it sideways. I saw somebody trying to emulate that uh, with a tripod now, a few years ago, and he, I believe he succeeded uh, in using, you know, the force of the tripod to lift a very, very heavy piece of, uh, of, of rock, I believe. Yep, yep, I think I saw that too. Um, I'm not sure, as I say, whether Leeds going used that to mainly to lift or to shift sideways. Once he had it up to altitude, you know, several feet above deck so he could get on the back of that truck, he might have used that as a, as a lever to move it sideways because, you know, as I say, mass, even though it's up at the right altitude in the air for you to put it on the back of the truck or put it up on the pyramid, you've still got to have the grunt to move it sideways. Um, things just don't move in a gravitational field without some energy being expended to move it sideways even. Not as much as lifting it up, but uh, because the gravitational field is more downward. But um, I, I suspected that uh, Leeds Cullen did most of his stuff just to shift it sideways uh, when he'd uh, activated the, the field that he was using. Interesting fellow, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. And for anybody who ever goes to South Florida, just visit that place. I used to visit it as a, as a youngster. And to me, it was boring because I didn't understand what was behind it. But as an adult, I really enjoy every time I go there, especially his quarters where he used to live. Very interesting. But before we take our one and only intermission stand, you mentioned the underground battles. And one person comes to mind, Phil Schneider, the 1979 Dulce, Battle of Dulce. Do you lend any credence to his testimony? Well, someone asked me that the other day, and I can't speak to it because, I mean, he was obviously involved in areas and stuff that, that I wasn't, if, if it's true. He he is aware of my work and uh, was interrogated uh, uh, briefly about my participation, and he said he knew of me, and uh, that was about it. And I'd say the same thing about him. I knew of him, but... Can I verify everything he said? No, I, I can't. But I do know that battles did occur, and that does seem to be in keeping with what uh, my security people were telling me down in Australia. It wasn't Dulce, but uh, there were a number of bases which had this problem. And when we come back, I want to discuss so many things. Climate change, the sinkholes, the trumpet sounds that we're seeing around the world, and everything else that's possibly coming. Space weather. But tell us how people buy your books, uh, get on your website, learn of, of Holly's uh, work as well. Well, um, go to our website. Uh, Holly updates it uh, six days a week with current news, probably two or three days ahead of the mainstream if they even cover some of the stuff. She scours about oh, 100 different uh, news sources across the planet. Starts about 4.30 in the morning, goes to about 10 in the morning, and uh, 
she has our books and DVDs and CD-ROMs listed there with under pictures of them. You can click on them and find out about them. She's got her her uh, main two works are the uh, Dare to Prepare book, a 632-page book on how to prepare yourself for you know various emergencies that would come up, like what we're talking about, uh, climate changes and things like that, uh, even just loss of your job and loss of your income, how you prepare for that in advance. And uh, then she's got the Prudent Places USA CD-ROM, which is uh, like a like a website, but you don't need to be on the internet for it. You just put it in your computer and your browser lets you go through it and see uh, all the, the different places in the United States that she's analyzed on 72 different parameters showing, you know, what problems this county has or that county or that city. And she's broken it down to, you know, every county in the United States, which is about 3,100 and some odd. There's quite a bit of information there in a map form and color and, and then with descriptions she's put in there about what you're seeing. So those two books form a companion for people that might want to move or might want to know what potential weather or you know nuclear or all kinds of other threats might be in their neighborhood, whether they want to move or not. And then we have uh, my first book, The Cosmic Conspiracy, the final edition of it, uh, also listed on the website there right next to hers. And it deals with preparation, uh, preparing people's minds and souls for what's happened and going to happen. And it does address the UFO situation and the fallen ones and technologies and anti-gravity. And it's a, kind of a collection of all kinds of things. But I would say basically it's aimed at the spiritual preparation of people more than the, 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 the detail that you need in Holly's book for the actual preparing your home or business or whatever with things that you need, supplies. So between the two of them, we have spiritual and physical preparation covered. That's such a great tool that you're referring to because I get one of the most frequently asked questions that I get all the time, Stan, is, Mel, where should I move? And I don't know the answer, and I'm hoping that uh, when we come back, you can discuss that too. Folks, don't go anywhere. I cannot believe that one hour just went by. It really felt like a few minutes. I'm here with Stan Dale. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Matt Stein, author of When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas. 